When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, friends. It's Vin Scully. It's time for Dr. Clapper. In sports, there's winning and losing and getting injured. That's why there's Dr. Clapper. Dr. Clapper is the former head of orthopedic surgery at Cedar sinai The Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper, presented by Cedar sinai Hey, Dr. Clapper. How are you? Saturday mornings from 7 to 9. Silence is golden when you can't think of a good answer. <laughs> yes, Doc, I love your show. Now, here he is, Dr. Robert Clapper. Good morning, Los Angeles, and welcome to another edition of the Weekend Warrior Show. I'm your host, Dr. Robert Clapper. I'm an orthopedic surgeon at Cedars-Sinai for 33 years and counting. What a big day I had in the operating room yesterday and this whole week. I hope to have a chance to talk about one of the fun parts for me. You remember my dad was a carpenter is to measure twice and cut once. I can make your leg longer or shorter when I do your knee or your hip surgery. Sometimes that's desirable, and most times it's just keep me equal because you got two legs. But it's quite interesting when I meet people. One of the cases that I did yesterday, about a year ago, I did one knee which was severely bow-legged, like a cowboy on top of a horse. We call it varus. Well, when you take that bow-legged knee and make it straight, even though you don't intentionally make the leg longer, it is, because going from bow-legged to straight. And now I'm here to do, yesterday, her other knee. And it was really quite nice for her to say, oh, my God, I can't wait for you to straighten this one out. And I will then feel equal again. Hip surgery, for sure, I can make you longer. And I have all kinds of tricks in the operating room to make sure I keep them exactly equal. But I'll get into it a little bit later. I am so excited for today's show. We don't just have one guest. We've got two. Look out, Wilbert. We got two. 7.15, we're going to be talking to Dean Stanek from West Marine about sailing and his love affair with sailing his whole life. And at 8.15, the Ventura Sailing School, the Leo Robbins Sailing School in Ventura, Tyler Young's going to be calling in. And I'm going to dedicate this whole show to wind and manipulating wind. It's the oldest thing man has done to transport himself. But it's fascinating. It's invisible. You're manipulating something you can't see. You can see the effect of the wind on trees and certainly on the sail and feel that power blow up your sails and move the boat. But it is an area... That is a challenge. And you know how much I love the world of art, the world of sports, the world of surgery, and the world of food. Wait till I tell you about manipulating wind in the world of food. I'll give you a hint. It involves an Italian dessert. And there's a bakery in L.A., Southern California, that specializes in Italian pastries. And I'm going to tell you what I'm talking about. But food, sports, art, and surgery, manipulating wind. Where in my lifetime do I see what a sailor does with wind manipulating it, doing it in art? Well, in 1968, Ella Fitzgerald got invited to Germany. 
Nobody could manipulate wind because Ella Fitzgerald, uniquely as a singer, understood words come out of your mouth from your vocal cords, the wind emanating from your lungs. But what happens when you now hum? Guess what? You know where humming comes from? It don't come from your mouth. It comes out of your nose. Go ahead right now. You could be driving around. Hold the steering wheel with one hand. Start humming. And now hold your nose. You can't hum when you hold your nose. Ella Fitzgerald understood where the air was coming from. Singing words versus humming. And you got to hear how she manipulated the position of the microphone she was holding. Because when she was singing, it was by her mouth. But as soon as she started to elongate the word and be made summertime into a hum, she moves that microphone to be in front of her nose, manipulating the air, the wind coming out of her body. Listen to a little bit of this unbelievable rendition of summertime. The Gershwins, 19, almost 100 years ago, they write this song. Summertime. Right? The words become a hum. Are you kidding me? And the living is easy. Easy becomes a hum. Wow. Fish are jumping. And the cotton is high. She's singing words, but she elongates the note by humming. She understood where this was coming from, and we're going to break down that song. What about in the world of sports? Well, in the world of sports, the fastest animal on the planet Earth, 200 miles an hour, it's not a cheetah. You know what it is? A peregrine falcon. Those red-tailed hawks that we see? The falcons. Well, Sean Hayes is an African-American man from Riverside, California, who has become the world's leader, expert in falcons and hunting with falcons. His story will surprise you. But the reason the falcon can become a sport, which is before there were guns, men hunted with falcons, is because of the shape of the wing. The shape of the wing of a falcon is like the shape of a sail to catch the air to propel the boat. The leading edge of the sail, the leading edge of the wing of this bird is different than other birds, which is why it can move so fast, and you're going to hear about it. It's just a fascinating subject. And in my world of medicine, as a surgeon at my end of the table, I'm using scalpels and saws and drills. I'm an orthopedic surgeon, so I'm not really dealing with air and manipulating wind except for suction of blood and stuff. But at the other end of the table, anesthesia, that's all they do is manipulate air. And the great Doug Brennan taught me about the endotracheal tube and how they manipulate the length of the tube depending on the lung disease the patients have. They're constantly manipulating wind and air. What a topic. Who knew? And I can't wait to get into it with two different guests. But I want you to listen to Phil from the Wings of Pegasus. This guy's amazing, a musicologist from England, breaking down Ella Fitzgerald and her understanding the difference between singing and the air coming out of your mouth versus your nose. I've just taken it back a little bit to point out this mic position that we've got going on. Because you'll notice how Ella's holding the mic really high up in front of her nose. And this is totally intentional by Ella. She's controlling the performance from a dynamic perspective. But also, 
getting the mic to where the sound is coming from. If we listen to the first line of the song, we've got Summertime, and she starts out with an even sound distributed between the nose and the mouth. So we have this summertime. And we start like that in the mouth. And as soon as we go to the M, we're now in a hum. Which comes out of your nose. So I've said this before in many videos, just hum and then close your nose off and the sound will stop. So this is why Ella's just holding that mic up higher than you normally would do to get the end of these lines to be the same volume as the beginning of the line. Because you can imagine that. Can you imagine? This guy's breaking down where she holds the microphone. If you start having the note just all out of the mouth and then you go to a... um, The mic is still at the mouth, but it's further away from the nose where now the sound's coming out. So it's a really subtle thing. And obviously, Ella's just, I mean, she's not being really dramatic with where she's moving the mic up and down. She's just holding it in that sweet spot between her mouth and her nose, and probably just towards the end of the lines, just bringing it subtly closer to her nose. an octave below where we started now with that C-sharp 3 and it even sounds quite low when I do it and I'm a guy but it's amazing to hear Ella's range and the depth that that quality that she had in the lower part of her range as well well listen to that again because it sounds like even on the easy she goes into the e and kind of closes it off into a hum again. It's subtle, but she's definitely still doing that. Fish are jumping And the cotton is high He's going to say that she's using her vocal cords like a trumpet. She's learned how to make her voice like an instrument by manipulating the wind. Connects those vocal cords really harshly to the point where it does sound like that horn section, like a trumpet, but the way that she uses her voice, just hitting these really cool jazzy lines, it's really like extemporizing like you would on the guitar or any other instrument, but she's just got this ability with her vocal cords to put into practice exactly what she's thinking of, that split second, and her vocal cords just produce it faultlessly. And you take to the sky. That is something to look out for throughout this whole performance. Just how open Ella's mouth is. Because by the end of every vocal phrase, pretty much, apart from where we are open dynamically, like we just had a second ago, just laying into it, look at just how closed her mouth is. So it just shows you how much she's controlling that sound all the time. Baby, do. And the lines are so expressive as well. Very much sounding like an instrument with a... The way that she kind of leans into it and then lets go of it is so similar to having a horn section there and somebody using that air to produce a note. That's exactly what we've got going on here with Ella's voice and her vocal cords just allowing that air to go through. Allowing that air to go through, capturing the air, capturing the wind. It may be Ella Fitzgerald singing 
or a peregrine falcon swooping out of the sky to get a pigeon, or an anesthesiologist using the right tube. Nobody understands sailing and the manipulation of wind in life better than a sailor. And coming up next, we're going to talk to one. I'm so excited. The great Dean Spanik from West Marine is going to be joining us, and I can't wait to ask him how manipulation of the wind actually works to a sailor. The number is 877-710-ESPN. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What's going on? It's Max. You know there's no better way to start your Saturday morning than with my friend Dr. Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. You're not going to leave me alone, are you? Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. The Grand Poobah, the Big Kahuna. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Speaking about manipulating airflow, listen to Ella Fitzgerald. It don't mean a thing. That's the specialness of sailing, is using that invisible power of wind to move that boat. And nobody knows it better than the great Dean Stanek. Dean, thanks so much for getting up early to be with us. Thank you, Dr. Clapper, for having me. What do you think about this crazy idea of talking about Ella Fitzgerald and manipulating wind to a sailor? Uh, that is uh, quite amazing. I mean, honestly, we all do exactly the same thing, just uh, with different instruments. That's exactly right. Well, tell us a little bit about you. First of all, am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Is it Stanick? You got it. All right. Tell me a little bit about you, Dean. Where did you grow up? What high school? What your father do for a living? And how did you end up in the sailing business? Well, um, you know, I've been in Southern California pretty much all my life. Grew up in Fountain Valley, went to Fountain Valley High School. Hmm. Um, I, I worked for West Marine for 30 years. My father was uh, worked in construction for a number of years, hmm. and then um, started working in the sales. Um, he came out from um, Ohio, hmm. and um, somehow or another, he figured in 1963 that he was going to go on vacation, and he stayed out here and. California and told his parents he wasn't going back and <laughs> met somebody that uh, actually liked to sail and he had no idea what that was at the time but uh, uh, he fell in love with it um, and strangely enough uh, he never knew how to swim but he sailed for 50 and still sails honestly uh, for the last 50 60 years wow do you do you remember the moment when you kind of fell in love with feeling like you're in the boat and then the wind comes up and with the sail being turned properly, you took off. Do you remember the feeling? Uh, yeah. I mean, honestly, at that point, uh, the first memory was probably just having my own independence at like 10. Hmm. Um, I sailed with dad on his boat and, and that was always cool. Learned a lot. Uh, but, uh, the first real memory was probably in my own little boat and, um, not having anybody else around me and figuring out how to make that thing go wherever I wanted it to go. And, and you that act, was just, it was a really cool experience. You, have you, is it true you, according to Lauren Forgione and Britt Nero, who I want to thank for getting you on the line, is it true you actually sailed to Hawaii from California? Yes, absolutely. I uh, did it in 2017 uh, with a good friend, Stephen Ashley, on a boat called Andiamo. Just the two um, of you. And... Uh, no, it, it Transpac is a race that goes from L.A. to Honolulu. It happens on every odd year, so it's every other year. Wow. And uh, there were seven of us on the team at that point. So did you hit any storms? Do you have any memorable events during that trip? 
Oh, God, there's tons of memorable events. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a line of them. Um, and you going to Hawaii, storms, not so many storms, and that's the beauty of that race is you don't end up with a ton of storms. You kind of are a little bit low of a big high that usually sits just uh, north of us, and you don't really get a lot of storms coming in from uh, Baja and south because they kind of peter out. The, the, the ocean gets a little chillier. Um, but you end up with a bunch of squalls, as we call them, and these things are little tiny storms that pop up, and usually they pop up at like 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning, hmm. and they just blow over the top of you with a bunch of wind, usually about maybe twice of what you're normally used to. Um, and then they go away in about 45 minutes, hmm. just enough to get you up and awake and completely wet, and then they go away and you dry out. Wow. So I'm just an orthopedic surgeon. I am not a sailor, so I apologize already for asking a bunch of stupid questions, but I'm fascinated by you making a living in a world where things are invisible. You can't see the wind. You only can see the effect. So the shape of the sail, the cutting edge of the sail, the bending of the sail, the sail in the middle of the boat versus the front of the boat, take us through some of the basics of what capturing the wind and manipulating the wind is like to a sailor it's it, you know it's a the simplest term is it's really a balancing act hmm. um you know it, the wind in the sails it is literally like trying to make an airplane wing um and, and change it to make it as perfect an airfoil as possible in the particular conditions you're in um, and the fact that, you know, you're trying to push a boat or, or a vessel through the water, which is, you know, greater than 900 times more dense than the air, you have to do it pretty efficiently um, just to get that thing to move. And you're really balancing. Uh, most boats have uh, at least two sails and one sails in front of the center of mass and one's behind. And if you took one down, the boat wants to turn in one direction. You took the other down, the boat wants to turn in another direction. So it's a matter of balancing the two um, to get the proper um, force off of both that makes the boat want to go straight. Hmm. And you're consistently just manipulating those two to make that happen. And when you do, uh, you, you create a really awesome balance that uh, makes you just want to relax. And when you get better at it, it becomes just second nature. I've, I'd love to ask you this question, since you're now an expert because you actually sailed to Hawaii in my book, and I love Hawaii because I love to surf. And I've always loved seeing the early woodcuts, the early portraits of what Captain Cook saw when he first discovered the Hawaiian Islands. Discover, what a ridiculous term because there were already Polynesians there, so he didn't discover anything. He discovered it, but they were there already. But the very first thing that happens when when a Jewish guy from New York, me, gets into a sailboat, the mast is vertical, but the boom, which is horizontal, which holds the bottom end of the triangle, when the wind goes to the right, great, you're very happy the sailor's doing his job. But then you all of a sudden you need to turn. No one tells you this is what invariably happens to someone like me is bada boom, literally the boom hits me in the head because the sail goes to the other side and you got to learn to get your head underneath it as it comes on the other side to catch the wind to go in the other direction but look at the polynesian sails they didn't have that horizontal boom and yet they were most efficient at at garnering the wind what is up with the sail that the polynesians the hawaiians had versus what we now use as a sail so, I mean, what the Polynesians had, and, and honestly, we have some sailboats now that uh, we will sail um, that are similar to that. Um, those particular sails are, they make a really large airfoil. Um, and typically that airfoil really can't go into the wind. And that's the biggest issue with most sailboats is you can't go directly into the wind. Mm -hmm. You have to go... Um, at least 30, 45 degrees off the wind off of each side. Mm -hmm. So if your destination is directly into the wind, you're going to have to, as we call, tack back and forth. Mm -hmm. The Polynesians with their sails, 
they had a really hard time going into the wind. The best they could do was about 45 degrees to 50, 60 degrees off the wind. Hmm. So if they wanted to go to an island that was into the wind, it was a really long adventure for them. Hmm. The newer uh, style sails with booms attached um, makes that airfoil substantially more efficient so that we can actually go into the wind uh, at a much better angle. So it's just a more efficient uh, way of doing it. When I surf... Dean Stanek from West Marine. The moment that I enjoy the most is when I'm out there, I'm looking at the horizon, and now I see in the shadows on the horizon the set that's coming. I turn my surfboard and I start paddling as hard as I can, and I swear it's like God taps me on the shoulder because the wave is behind me. I cannot see it, I just know it's coming. I'm paddling as hard as I can to get my speed, and it's as though God taps me on the shoulder and says, okay, Robbie, you can stop. You've caught the wave. Get on your feet. Stand up. It's this amazing conversation that I have with the Spirit, with God, whatever you want to call it. It's amazing. Can you speak to what it must be like to be in a sailboat? And I'm not talking about a big one. I could care less about the big ones. I'm talking like a sunfish or a sabot or something little where it's, is it almost like the wind, this invisible power starts to talk to you and tell you, do this, do that. No, you're doing this wrong. Do it this way. And you can feel it capture the wind. Do you actually have a conversation and a feeling with something that's invisible? Well, when you're on a boat alone, you have lots of conversations with yourself. And you come to realize that that, that is actually normal. And, you know, you can answer yourself once in a while. And that's not completely out in left field. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, and I think you described it very well. Um, there are many surfers that do sail. And it's that same type of conversation that you do have. Um, and it's not just with the wave, like you're talking, it is with the wind as well. And many times it's the balance of the two. It's the combination. Mm. And you literally will start to feel the wind on, on the back of your neck, on your ear. You realize that your face is just a perfect scenario for being able to feel the wind from different angles. Mm. Um, you know, you really have heightened senses because of that. Mm. And, uh, yeah, you really do. You end up talking to, you know, whomever you feel is more powerful at the time uh, and really just trying to be in one with them. Mm. And that feeling, as you well know, when you get that wave, there's nothing like it. Mm. There's just nothing like it. You know, it's it's, uh, it's your happy place. And it doesn't necessarily last for a long time, but you makes you come back for more. Mm. How does someone get started? Teach us what I would do. You go to West Marine, you buy a boat, you buy a sail. How, how does this all happen? So, you know, you, obviously you have to have, uh, one, the desire. And, you know, it sounds silly, but, uh, you know, a lot of people like to jump into things that really don't have a desire to do it. Um, and then they fail. Um, so, obviously, you got to have the desire. You need to ha give yourself the time to learn it. Uh, it's not necessarily the easiest sport to learn. It's not like just going and picking up a ball and, run around uh there's a, a bunch of terminology and so forth you gotta learn so it's it's probably a good 20 hours just to kind of learn the basics and you got to give yourself time to do it mm. um i would say you need to have kind of a love for the water um a love for the outdoors um as you well know mother nature is not necessarily forgiving so if you don't like being out there with her then it's probably not the place for you um and then you know it, it's a physical sport you need to know your physical capabilities. You know, I would say it's probably a good idea to know how to swim. If you're afraid of the water and don't, then I don't know if it's probably the best scenario for you. Um, the other thing would be is, you know, you've got to have the right equipment. Um, and that's where I have pretty much made my, my living. Um, you know, and I would say for the equipment, the first thing you really need to have are shoes. Mm. Uh, you're moving around on a boat on a platform that literally is moving in three dimensions all the time. There is not really a break. It's always moving. So having shoes is important. You're going to be pulling lines, lots of lines. You have to learn what they all are. But pulling those lines, you need to put some gloves on. Um, your, your hands, when you first go out, definitely are not used to doing that. So you need to protect them. Um, sunglasses. 
I amazed at how many people forget to actually bring good sunglasses, polarized ones if possible. Hmm. Um, a hat, sunblock probably, you know, and then clothes. A lot of people forget to bring the sunblock. You have long sleeve shirts, and I would say the polyester shirts are the best. Hmm. Um, they block the wind really well. They're light. They're airy. Um, I think Columbia does a really good job with those and makes it more comfortable. So, I mean, to get started, I think that's kind of the basics. So a good windbreaker always helps. Not, it really depends upon when you decide to go do it. Right now in Southern California, it's warm. It's, I've been out last week twice, and this week I'm going to head down to the boat a little bit later here. But, uh, you know, I don't think I'll need a jacket at all. I haven't needed one in probably a couple weeks. Dean, I have, I have a minute left. I want to ask you one final question. Of all the year, how old are you, by the way? 53. 53. You sailed your whole life. You even went to Hawaii. What's the greatest interaction you've had as a sailor on the ocean with nature? Pelican, a whale, a shark, a dolphin. Can you can you give us one unbelievable experience with Mother Nature? You know, there was a race that we did uh, a couple years ago, and it, it, it goes, the race starts in L.A., it goes around Catalina, and then goes into San Diego. And um, it was probably 10, 11 o'clock at night, and um, it, was, it was kind of a slow race. The, the wind had kind of died, and it was just starting to pick back up again. But there was no moon, pitch black out. The stars were absolutely amazing. There were probably at that point five or six shooting stars. And next thing you know, it's dead silence out. And all you hear is the blow of a whale. And he's literally right next to the boat. It was an amazing experience. He sat there for quite a while, a slight bit frightening, the fact that he is definitely bigger than the boat I'm on. He literally goes below and comes back up on the other side of the boat and does the same thing twice. It was just an amazing experience. And then right after that, here comes a bunch of dolphins. And there were probably three to 400 dolphins. And they literally just played along the boat the entire time for probably a good hour. And just the illuminescence that they create as they go through the water allows you to see where they were, but not necessarily them, but you can feel their presence. it's, It's amazing. And that's just one. And honestly, I would say... Every other time I go out and get on the water and I go for an evening, I see dolphin. I see it's a very rare occasion I don't see other animals. And that just warms your heart. At least it does mine. You just warmed our heart, Dean Stanek. Thanks so much for getting up early to be with us. The power of the wind, being out there with Mother Nature. That's what it's all about. And we're so lucky to be able to live in Southern California. God bless you. I really appreciate the time, Dean. We all do. Keep doing what you're doing. And thanks again to West Marine for making uh, time for you to be here. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dr. Clapper. Have a great day. All right. God bless you. All right, Warriors. The number is 877-710-ESPN. have to do some Clapper vision about Zach Wilson. He tore his meniscus and has a bone bruise. Is that going to be a problem for this young quarterback for the New York Jets who flew to Los Angeles to have his surgery? I need to explain what... The ringer is in the bone bruise. The meniscus is one thing, but why may he have trouble with his knee because of the bruise? What does that mean? I'll explain. Coming up next, right here on the Weekend Warrior Show on 710 ESPN. This is Keyshawn in the morning. My man, Dr. Clapper, and the Weekend Warrior Show starts your Saturday morning. Join the doc from 7 to 9 a.m., but don't miss my show. Monday morning on 710 ESPN. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Roberto Claperio, a fish tacologist. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. I know the ins and outs of a fish taco. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Good job, Wilbert. Dust in the wind. Orleans. I remember them in high school. It's awesome. It's all about wind today. That's what I want to talk about. But let's do some clap revision with Zach Wilson. I actually saw a patient this week, a young girl. I was her third opinion because she fell and tore her meniscus, 38-year-old woman. 
And right away, okay, she got an MRI, torn meniscus, yada, 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 let's go do surgery right away. But she could fully straighten her knee and fully bend it, but she was miserable. She was in pain. I looked at the MRI with her. That's what I love. I hate just reading the report. I love pictures. I'm painting pictures. That's what Clapper Vision is. I love art. I love to sculpt. And I love teaching, which is what I'm doing here every Saturday for 12 years now, each of you how to... Be junior orthopedic surgeons in your family. And I love sitting down with patients and looking at their x-rays or looking at the MRI or CAT scan together. And lo and behold, what did I see when I saw her MRI? Yeah, I saw the meniscus tear, but it was not a worrisome one. And she's 38, almost 40 years old. You better leave it alone. Don't let someone take it out if you can fully straighten and fully bend. But, oh, my God, I told her, no, that's not the reason you're having so much pain. When you fell, you bruised your bone. You almost fractured your tibia. Look, I said, this part of the tibia on this screen, on this site of the MRI, this slice, the tibia marrow, the shin bones marrow, it's a black and white study in MRI, should be black. But look, this horizontal line is bright white. That's blood, even though blood is red. That's a bloody, bony bruise. You almost broke your tibia. That's going to heal on its own, just like a black and blue mark turns green and yellow and goes away. It's going to go away. And she kept saying, yeah, but the pain is going all the way down my tibia, my shin bone. I go, that's exactly what it does. It's like you took a hammer and banged on the bone. Bone bruises hurt. So I'm glad Zach Wilson came to L.A. to have his meniscus taken care of. But he's got a bone bruise as well. Everybody's excited. Will he be back for game one? We'll have to see. The pain lingers when you have a bone bruise. And that's the reason this young girl was hurting. More so than the meniscus tear that, honestly, she probably had from college. It did not look like it was anything acute. It was the bruise in the bone after the fall that led her to have knee pain. It's really interesting. But let's get into further today's topic. What a great little vignette story Dean taught us about sailing in the middle of the night with no wind and hearing that whale breathe through its blowhole right next to the boat. Sailing, the ultimate manipulation of wind. Ella Fitzgerald, the ultimate use of wind from her lungs to both sing words clearly through her mouth and then to hum. What about in the sporting world beyond sailing? Well, there's an entire sport. It's really a way of life. And it's ancient. And it involves using a hawk, a falcon, to hunt. It's actually something people do. It's called falconeering. And thanks to my son-in-law, a lot of expressions we use in our language comes from this ancient sport. You ever hear that term, I got you under my skin? That comes from falconeering. You ever hear that expression, I got you tied around my little finger? That comes from falconeering. These ancient expressions come from that sport. But first I need to teach you about a peregrine falcon. This is the great David Attenborough. He could read a menu and it would sound great with that accent that he has. To watch a bird that has evolved into one of the world's most skillful hunters, I've come to Italy and the city of Rome. There's a bird that flies over these roofs that finds its prey not on the ground, but in the air. And it owes its success to its speed. In fact, it's said to be the fastest moving animal on earth, the peregrine. When I say fastest, it don't sound so good. But when you say fastest, oh, it's like another word. I'd love to be fastest all day long. Peregrines hunt other birds. Many different kinds of birds now live in cities, attracted by the food and shelter that is so easily found here. 
And a tall building like this is an ideal lookout for a hunter. Flying prey can move in any direction it chooses, so a hunter has to be both fast and agile if it's to get a meal. Fastest animal on earth, the falcon. But why? A peregrine's wings have a very special shape. They're pointed and swept back. If wings have a blunt end, air will swirl over that end, forming trails of turbulence. These act like brakes slowing a bird down. But pointed wings shrink that edge and so reduce the turbulence. Pulling the wings back towards the body makes the bird even more streamlined. And speed is crucial to a peregrine's success. Speed by manipulating the wind because of the shape of their wings. So to catch a starling, a peregrine must be even faster. And in order to gain speed and surprise, it attacks from above. First, it climbs. When it sees a group of its potential prey, it turns, dives, and accelerates by beating its wings. Wow. Finally, the peregrine draws its wings back. This is called the stoop, a superb streamlined shape that slices through the air. Now it can reach speeds of over 200 miles an hour. As it nears its target, it opens its wings to slow its descent and makes its final lunge. Coming up next, you're going to hear the most incredible story about a falconeer. His name is Sean Hayes, and he's the best in the world. But you'd never expect it to be a man from Riverside, California, whose friends gave him a, a baby red-tailed hawk that was abandoned in the street. His story of getting into a sport that nobody, even his fourth grade teacher said to him, people like you, because he's black, people like you don't do this. And you'll hear him say, one of the reasons I love being a falconeer is because that bird doesn't care what color my skin is. It's an amazing story. And I'll share it with you coming up next right here on the weekend warrior show on 710 espn hey it's john ireland you know there is no better way to start your saturday than with the man who replaced michael thompson's hip dr clapper and the weekend warrior show 7 to 9 a.m saturday mornings don't miss my show mason and ireland back monday at one all here on 710 espn What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Soon to be a major motion picture. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Without a good hip, you ain't hopping, that's for sure. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Wilbur, you're my hero. Thanks for playing that. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Buckle your seatbelt because this next story you're going to hear is all about the wind manipulating it, the air. But it's by a man who appreciates it more than anybody else because his partner is a bird. It's a peregrine falcon. And he's the world's expert in how to hunt with a falcon. And he's from Riverside, California. And his name is Sean Hayes. His story is inspiring. Listen carefully. I grew up in Riverside, California. I had two brothers and three sisters. My mom would take me out in the country sometimes and just drop me off and I'd just go explore. My fourth grade teacher told me I'm not supposed to go up in the mountains and ski and get pine cones and fish. Your kind of people don't do that. Your kind of people. But being out in the parks and river bottoms and in the mountain areas where I lived, I was able to see some of the wild birds fly and catch rabbits and chase each other and raise young. 
I didn't really understand what it was, but I knew I did want to have some type of a relationship with the birds. With the birds. Manipulating wind as a sport. Not that he's flying, but he's channeling that feeling that his birds have. Incredible. Some friends of mine found this bird out in the street. It was a young reptile hawk, not even ready to fly it. They knew that I was into birds, so they brought it to me, so I, I raised this bird. One of my friends brought home a falconry book. I tried to read it, but I really didn't understand it because it was really in-depth. But I would just look at the pictures, try to put as much as I could together. I knew that falconers put bells on their birds, and so I would go up in the attic and raid my mom's Christmas decorations and put Christmas bells on my bird's legs, (laughs) thinking that was a part of the falconry equipment. You know, I'm walking around with a gardening glove. I have this hawk on my fist, and I had no idea what I was doing, but I'm practicing falconry in the city. Practicing falconry in the city. Can you imagine this kid? This African-American little kid is walking around with a red-tailed hawk on his hand. But when that bird starts to flap its wings and fly high in the sky, and here's the best part, it comes back. There's no string. His bird loves him and comes back on its own volition. Falconry is not a sport, it's not an art, it's a way of life. Falconry was started before we had guns. That was a way that people put food on the table. My birds, to me, we're just partners. It's my responsibility to provide them with the opportunity to go out and hunt. You're trying to orchestrate the perfect flight. Sean, what is it about the falcon that makes it so special in manipulating the wind? This is awesome. The enjoyment I get out of it is watching, and that's the relationship falconers and falcons have. We don't fly our birds with strings on them or anything. Sometimes they do fly away, and you have to start over. Every day you get your bird back is a successful day. When my birds hunt, they're pretty serious. They're designed for speed pointed wings, you know, how their feathers are shaped, their long toes, and that little notch in their nose cuts the air and allows them to breathe while they come down and strike their prey with force. And when they're coming to approach their game, you hear it before you see it, cutting through that air. So from his fourth grade teacher saying, African-American kids don't get to do this. You're not supposed to be doing this. Listen to him now say, That bird doesn't care what color my skin is or what car I drive. He's my partner. When they make contact, it's like a jab punch. The falcon strikes it and dazes it. The shape of their beaks are designed to snap the vertebrae and kill them instantly. Raptors and hawks live really hard lives. And to have a relationship with a wild animal, knowing that that wild animal accepts you as a partner and as a friend is a blessing. That bird doesn't care what color I am. That bird doesn't care what kind of car I drive. That bird doesn't care, you know, where I sleep at night. And if I make that bird understand that I want to be its partner and give it an opportunity to live and fly and have a relationship with me, I can apply that too with you or anybody else. Just think about it. He's working in a world that's invisible. That speed, that cutting through the air. Sailing, same thing. You're manipulating something you can't see. All you can do is feel it. And when you talk about feeling and manipulating air, it's when someone like Ella Fitzgerald not only sings the words from Porgy and Bess that the Gershwin brothers wrote 90 years ago, but she incorporates humming to elongate the notes, making her lungs like a trumpet. Manipulating air and wind, it allows you to do this.
Fish are jumping. Wow. And the cotton is high. Incredible. What about the world of food? How do you manipulate wind in the world of food? I thought about it all week long as I had some incredible desserts. <laughs> and there is an amazing Italian bakery that manipulates wind. What do I mean? Well, it's called a cannoli. What is a cannoli? It's essentially a wonton noodle that they bend and make it into a tube. They have these special little metal cylinders that they wrap the dough around and deep fry it. So it becomes like a tube when it comes out of the fryer. It's just like blowing a whistle. It looks like a straw. It's a pipe. It's empty on the inside. But unlike a donut, which keeps the empty space, Good Time Donuts in Ventura, my favorite donut. Make sure you say hi to Sue. But that donut hole is a space that remains. You now got to manipulate with that sweet mascarpone cheese. Sometimes they put pistachios. Sometimes they put chocolate chips. I am a cannoliologist. Right? If you know the heart, you're a cardiologist. You know the nerves, you're a neurologist. You know how disease works under the microscope, you're a pathologist. Ologist. Knowledge. Expert. Well, I'm a cannoliologist. I've been eating them my whole life. In Italian bakeries, like in New York, if you ever go to New York, go to Little Italy, go to Ferrara's. You'll have an amazing, probably the best cannoli I ever had, even better than Italy. But where in Southern California does someone manipulate the wind to pipe in to that hollow tube? Just like the air going through the vocal cord, making speech. Your trachea is like a cannoli shell. And the words and the humming that come out of that air from your lungs go through it. It's like piping that cheese, that sweet cheese. And then dusting it with powdered sugar and chocolate chips and pistachio. Where are the best cannolis in Southern California? Well, a little later in the show, I'm going to tell you where I discovered the best cannoli in L.A. Coming up next, I'm going to tell some stories about today's topic manipulating air and wind because at 815 the greatest place to learn how to sail is the leo robbins ventura sailing school and we're going to be hearing from tyler young all about that school but coming up next i'm going to tell some stories about manipulating wind just like a sailor in art and in sports, you're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. 